What's up, hardcore humans? Welcome to the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. Today, we are talking with none other than Jello Biafra. Now, many of you, of course, know Jello from the seminal hardcore punk group Dead Kennedys. And the Dead Kennedys were such an important band, not only because of their great music, but also because of their commitment to spreading the word about hardcore punk across the country with their raucous live shows. And Jello took the next step in developing punk rock culture by starting his own independent record label, Alternative Tentacles, which has released music from Dead Kennedys, as well as bands like The Melvins, Articles of Faith, and Bad Brains. More recently, Jello has been working with his band Jello Biafra and the Guantanamo School of Medicine on their new album, Tea Party Revenge Porn. Now, at Hardcore Humanism, we are here to help you discover your life's purpose and work hard to achieve it. And I wanted to talk with Jello about a very important aspect of discovering and pursuing our purpose in life, how we understand and sometimes challenge authority. Now, many of us are aware of how Jello challenges authority in the political realm, whether it's just speaking out about his political beliefs, challenging the Parents Music Resource Center on its censorship, or even running for mayor of San Francisco. But Jello and I actually started with a topic a bit closer to home, his relationship with his father. Jello's father was actually a psychiatric social worker who was very committed to making sure that people had access to mental health care. And because many of us experience our first relationship with authority and begin to understand our sense of purpose in the context of our relationship with our parents, I was curious about how his father's work and their relationship influenced Jello's approach to his own life and career. So let's hear what Jello has to say. So we are going to talk about an interesting area, which is growing up with a mental health professional as a parent. And so let's just get right into it. Your dad was a psychiatric social worker. Yeah, that was what he called himself. He was also a poet and a rock climbing pioneer as well. I mean, when I had to pull it all together for his eulogy, I sort of like realized what a pipsqueak I am compared to all the things he accomplished and still managed to raise kids and everything else and have time for the family too. But I guess he was at first self-taught. He grew up in Colorado Springs, Colorado, named Stan Boucher, B-O-U-C-H-E-R. Me and my sister both went to the French pronunciation Boucher as soon as we left home. He, I, he started reading uh, Sigmund Freud probably in high school. And I guess that was considered a radical thing to do in the 30s, early 40s. He was born in 27. He and my mom were Depression kids. So I learned the value of a dollar and recycling and this saving and reusing and all that good stuff. Anyway, and so I guess there were even arguments with teachers about Freud even then and whatnot. And then he hopped over to Colorado College and where him, my grandpa ran the physics department and stuff. I'm not sure if he ever crossed paths with Tesla or not. I think he came just after Tesla was gone. But And I never knew to ask him while he was alive, and neither did my dad. So uh, anyway, I mean, really weird things like that about Colorado Springs. Nobody knows Lon Chaney grew up there either. But a few more know it spawned Elvira. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but not me. <laughs> It's interesting that you that you talk about him, the rebelliousness of Freud, because by the time I got into the field, Freud was like the establishment. And, you know, that was what, to a certain extent, I felt like that that was shoved down my throat a little bit. And I was kind of rebelling against that. And so it's and interesting, who, like the who different... Who you into instead? I am Young. very much into... No, no, no. Because to me, that's... I, I didn't like any of that. I mean, look, don't get me wrong. I think that all of the perspectives have value and all that kind of stuff. And I think as philosophy, it was, it was interesting, but I don't like the fundamental concept that there is something happening that is outside of your awareness that is not just influencing, but almost controlling your behavior. Because it's interesting as a philosophy I'm to inform. Sure William Burroughs would agree with that. <laughs> well, I love it's William Burroughs. So, documenting instruments of control. <laughs> but I loved Carl Rogers. I love Carl Rogers a lot. Yeah, I think uh, he's, you know, a lot, you know, Freud thought people were kind of evil. And uh, 
Skinner thought people were empty and, and, and Rogers thought people were good. And like, the idea was basically we just had to get out of the way with all the things that we did to mess people up. And that was what the therapy was a lot for him. So that, that for me was a big thing, but it's interesting to hear someone talking about Freud and, and that being rebellious because I could imagine during that time it was, you know what I mean? I think he stuck to that later rebelling at what came down the line in some ways too. He had mentioned up to me R.D. Lang at one point later when I was a teenager, but I'm not sure how much he was on the same page with him. And he, he wasn't treating people any, anymore anyway. When he got into it, mental health was still a very new open field. Sure, there were so-called insane asylums, but there was starting to be a movement away from that. And so he got his master's at UC Berkeley and did some practicing and treating people at a clinic somewhere in San Francisco and got offered quite the cushy job. I think it would have been Langley Porter. Would that make sense? That wouldn't be. And declined it for a couple reasons. Number one, he felt like he should be treating more than just people who had money and stuff and maybe you know, try and do some other things for people besides that that would tie in. And then the state of Colorado offered him a job. And, uh, you know, I think he liked Boulder the best for, for its proximity to the mountains he liked to climb and stuff. So he came back there and then I happened and stuff. But the first job in Colorado, they were based in an old military base called Fort Logan in Denver. And his boss, Dr. Lynn Hopple, had his own little private prop plane. And so he wasn't that much that wealthy. He just spent his money on a plane because he liked to fly. And so they would get in his plane and fly all over the state. You know, once a month or something, two weeks, I don't remember, there'd be a mental health clinic in Sterling, way out in the plains near Nebraska, or in Grand Junction over on the western slope before he hit the Utah border when the desert is started and starting after the uh, Rocky Mountains and stuff, as we know. And there were some other, maybe La Honda too, I don't know, and hopped around and had people that he worked on there and stuff. And then eventually he got lured into doing some other job as a mental health advocate for the state of Colorado, where every once in a while he even had to sit down with the governor, who was a Republican then by the name of John Love. That was the state job. And then eventually he got lured away from that to actually work in Boulder for a place I think they still exist called Western Interstate Commission for Higher Education, otherwise known as Witchy. And his job there was helping set up continuing education centers, especially as it applied to mental health all over the Western United States and ghettos, Indian reservations and other places. So he wound up having a lot of interesting and friends and some interesting adventures, you know, to the point where one time he was kidnapped by rat, <laughs> radical Brown berets and held in another room while they berated the uh, Chicano mental health people. What are you doing talking to this Anglo and stuff? And they eventually decided he was all right. And so then when they were, he was going to have a bigger conference in Santa Barbara, he invited them and they showed up to, you know, get some more input just in time for Nixon to go into Cambodia and protesters burned the Bank of America down. And so Santa Barbara called in the LAPD and the LA County Sheriff, clear out of their jurisdiction, of course, did what the LAPD loved to do, including dad wakes up and finds out this horseshoe shaped, uh, motel, maybe two stories where he's having the conference, was surrounded by LAPD cops and they put um, you know, concertina wire down the uh, middle of the horseshoe shape. And he went out to talk to the co cop and he said the cop stuck a shotgun in his belly and uh, was shaking as much as he was. I mean, dad didn't share that much with me, the rebellious son, but you know, he comes home and then we sit down to dinner. He couldn't very well not talk about that experience. And apparently there were, um, you know, from time to time, the cops would be chasing people and they go in and out of the building and through his conference and whatnot, which I experienced later at Kent State during an Iraq war protest on the anniversary of the Kent State massacre. You know, it's, it's interesting that you say the rebellious son because 
You know, w- one of the things that I, I was always taken by was the video of that. I think it was a live performance of Nazi punk saying, if you're no different from your parents, what are you rebelling against? You know, you're just fitting in. And yet here I, I hear this guy who you're talking about, right? So follow me on this logic. You know, you have this guy who's got this tremendous empathy for people and feels like there are things that need to be changed in the world. He travels all over the place, setting up, in this case, mental health clinics, even in the face of, of violence, even violence from the police. And I think, who does that sound like if you were to move ahead and, and talk about in terms of hardcore? And so it, it brings up an interesting question, which is that at what point, I mean, am I, am I misunderstanding the, the connection between the two of you? Like, did it not seem like that when you were growing up? We fought a lot. And with my mom, too, over all kinds of fa- things within the family and other stuff. And even long hair for a while. But then one day he stopped hassling me about it. So I just didn't cut it for the next two or three years. And I was fine. <laughs> this was pre-punk when long hair was still the main way to freak people out and rebel and stuff. And so, but one one area where... They were really good, both of them. My mom was a librarian. She ran interlibrary loan at the University of Colorado and years earlier was a librarian at Witchy before dad ever worked there. And actually, then she got pregnant with my sister and didn't work for a while. But one thing I've learned from, you know, a lot of other people my age later when they didn't seem to have any tangible memories of Vietnam or even Watergate when we were in high school. And man, even in fourth grade, everybody had an opinion on that war in elementary school. Everybody. And how can they not remember that? Well, maybe part of the reason is that in my family, well, in my case, I'd watch a cartoon show or two towards the end of the afternoon, and then the news would come on at six, and I watched that with equal fascination you know, both local and the Huntley-Brinkley report on NBC. I had imitations of both of them by the time I was six, apparently. But uh, anyway, what it meant was, even if we were sitting down to dinner at the time and super bloody Vietnam War footage like they would never show on TV now came on, or those horrible scenes like from Selma and other places, I remember the hoses and the dogs on African-Americans trying to march and stuff. I don't recall seeing John Lewis get his skull cracked in pretty much in the same frame and stuff. But they didn't change the channel. Like I think most people did. Oh, this is too upsetting for the children. Let's watch this other cartoon show or something else or whatever. But they were like, no, no. They discussed the whole thing. My mom just reacted to those hoses and stuff. I don't understand why anybody would hate somebody because of the color of their skin. And that had, that made an impression. (laughs) And so, and being a news hound anyway, and being interested in this stuff, you know, I had very strong opinions about racism, civil rights, environmentalism, Vietnam and others from a very early age. And I was really engaged with it, which, uh, I'm really grateful I was that into it and that immersed at that age. It didn't hurt that Boulder was a college town that had a lot of anti-war uprisings going on itself. I think the Unitarian Church had draft dodgers in the basement they wouldn't give up. And Joe Coors of the Beer Fortune was on the Board of Regents at one point and wanted a military occupation of the CU campus, at which point my parents threw Coors beer out of the house and never let it back in. And uh, yeah, Joe was in Reagan's kitchen cabinet later. He gave us James Watt and many other things. Kept me fired up and engaged and informed. Plus, at the same time, now, my parents were classical music people, maybe a little bit of folk music, little Pete Seeger, Joan Baez, a little bit more. Dad had the occasional ethnic music record, a Japanese kabuki record I liked and rediscovered in my teenage pothead days and thought it was cool and whatnot. I wish George Harrison had listened to that first, but uh, 
only record trade I ever did with my dad was to trade him an Eric Satie album for his Ozuma Kabuki Musicians album. So it migrated about 10 feet from one room to the other in the house. But anyway, they try to get me to go to sleep when I'm about seven years old, fall of 65, second grade. They blundered on a rock and roll station. No, I like that. Leave it there. Leave it there. And to their eternal regret, they did. Because within a day or two, there was no stopping me. I loved that music and stuff. It was actually like it was a great time to go to bed because then I got to listen to KIMN radio and quickly gravitated more to the Stones than the Beatles, although I identified with the Beatles because even my grandmother knew who the Beatles were and stuff. And But this was also when KIMN played, still played local garage bands mixed in, like the Moonrakers and... The Astronauts, who had a national name as a surf instrumental band, but they kept going as a, a vocal group for many years after that. And so I was all in, jumping up and down, pretending I was Mitch Ryder or something on the bed when I was supposed to be asleep. Or, you know, when I grow up, I want to be in the Yardbirds, whatever, something like that. And there was even a TV show that the parents actually, since I never looked at the guide or even bothered saying anything about what could be on TV, thus I never saw the Munsters or the Adams Family or other favorites of some of my friends, but they allowed Hullabaloo on, which was a musical variety show geared toward teenagers of all ages in the mid-60s, right at the same time, 65, 66, 67. So I got to see a lot of these bands, too. And okay, I look at it later, some of it was lip-synced, but God, I love that show. You know, what do you want to be when you grow up? I know what I want to be when I grow up. I mean, there was a detour later when Batman came on, and I would rather be the Riddler or the Penguin or something. When I grow up, I want to be a fireman. I want to be a policeman. I want to be a baseball player. I want to be a nurse. I want to be the Riddler. I want to be the Joker. These are my role models. But uh, overall, yeah, that really, really uh, had a... But what I'm, get, what I'm trying to connect here is, the political stuff and the music eventually converged. I mean, I wasn't a big fan of Bob Dylan because I just didn't like that kind of music very much. But then, there, you know, there, it started, people like Steppenwolf started to drift into it and the Edwin Starr hit against the Vietnam War. And then I went to the Woodstock movie with my dad and he'd already seen and pointed out, I really like this guy. And it was Country Joe McDonald with the feeling like I'm fixing to die rag, that great anti-Vietnam War song that Rolling Stone didn't even acknowledge in its last issue is one of the 40 greatest protest songs and stuff. So... You know, the fact that they connected, and so I connected with a culture and everything as well, was huge. I experienced it at such a deep personal level when most people, even my age, and I'm 62 now, if they think of the 60s, it's some little thing that movies were made about or, you know, classic rock radio, although that's mainly the worst of the 70s they play on some of that, that and whatnot, but you know, I, to me, it's all, you know, very deep part of my fire, my soul, what some recovering addicts might call a higher power. I don't know. But, you know, it's interesting, again, you know, thinking about this thing with your dad, because when I hear what you did, right, you know, and Steve, I, if I'm remembering correctly, I think Steve Blush said that in American Hardcore that you did more to spread hardcore than anybody else. I hope I have that quote right. But the... I hear, you know, as an outsider, I, I hear your dad. I hear, and then I hear these things that you're talking about. How about your dad let you watch things that were a little bit edgier and listen to things that were edgier? And so one of the things that, that a lot of times people wonder about is how do you rebel against somebody that you then maybe grow up to kind of be very similar to them? Like, what is that process? Because well, your, dad, your dad sounds good. super cool, you know? I mean... I mean, you're politically this way, Dad, but at home you're like Nixon, and he hit me. <laughs> oh, well, that, you know, that, that, he, that, that is a difference. You know, as a parent, he was kind of a fascist, and I and part of the problem with instilling this kind of stuff in your kids, especially in your son, is it's not very long before he turns that lens towards the parents as well as the school system and stuff. So uh, we did better as soon as I moved away. 
I had an worse relationship with my mother, but now she's, you know, just about my best friend. She's 91 years old and hates Trump more than anybody I know. <laughs> they were pragmatic liberal Democrats, although I'd have to say for people their age, they were probably borderline radical, especially as time went on. I mean, my mom was pro-Occupy, for example, and... Um, Although my dad and I went at it over NAFTA because he was, you know, totally against tariffs and things. I was like, this is something else and whatnot. I mean, because of all the work he did within the state of Colorado and knowing how hard it is to make the goalposts move at all within those structures, he was always very pragmatic of, you know, this is the, we can get this much done if I do this and this is what I'm do that. And you have to be willing to compromise and all that. So it wasn't until I was putting the eulogy together that I realized in his own small way, he was unwittingly part of the civil rights movement too, just for standing up to the LAPD and trying, as he put it with uh, his work in the Western United States for Wichi, to teach people how to teach. One of the biggest, I think, misconceptions is that if you're in the mental health field, somehow you, you know about things more than other people. So I'm here in case there's in case there's like three people left in the world who actually believe that I'm here to dispel that, that notion. And and oh, it didn't take the mental health field for my dad to believe that. He believed that anyway. I mean, he was an extraordinarily bright kid, way smarter than me, and whatnot. Extremely well read, encyclopedic knowledge of anything he read about anything, be it novels, poems, and he was an accomplished poet, and a, 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 an encyclopedic knowledge of world history as well. And so it also meant that, there, that sometimes, you know, the intellectual snob came out in very pompous ways. Like, he didn't want me to go see this movie, Brewster McCloud, because it had gotten a bad review from Pauline Kale, and that was the movie critic he trusted. Therefore, I shouldn't go see it, even on my own. Don't, you know, I want you to see that movie. And granted, it was kind of dull when I saw it. But, and then another time that really brought it home to me was, you know, I, I come back from San Francisco, Dead Kennedys is getting off the ground, and I'm so proud. It's the first thing I ever did, like so many people who do punk bands and stuff, or start zines or hip hop or whatever, you can do more now. You can make your own movies too. But I had done it on my own, something I really wanted to do that wasn't like a homework assignment, parent pressure, being yelled at by a coach or whatever. This was something I wanted to do that no one really back in Boulder, except a few of my weird friends, wanted me to do at all. I mean, my father sat me down. I told him I was leaving UC Santa Cruz. I was just going to go to San Francisco and go to this little acting school. But he knew, I think, the motive was to try and get a, get a punk rock band going and stuff. I was like, well, you really should reconsider this. And, you know, that's something you do as a hobby after you have a career and get your degree. And I'm like, yeah, but then it'll be too late. Punk was going to be the next Beatlemania. I mean, such an outbreak of talent, scaring all the right people. And it wasn't until into the, earlier in 1978, after the 77 explosion, that the majors in America decided they were not going to touch punk. New wave, skinny neckties, the knack, Pat Benatar, the car is fine. So, sure, it wasn't the next Beatlemania, but, that, but my, my point was being, I feel like because it was, the train was about to leave the station. And this was my one opportunity to, you know, do some weird-ass theatrical stuff, get my musical ideas out of my head, and, you know, maybe make some little impact and stuff. You know, I can tell my grandkids I saw the Avengers before they played stadiums or... Uh, one little single with my name on it in my record collection would be huge and stuff. Of course, it, it went further than that pretty fast. And then when one thing happens, then you got to you know, have some focus and some drive to go from there instead of expecting drugs to do it for you. Then I, get, I come back for a visit. Dead Kennedy's off the ground for a couple of months. I show my dad some pictures of the band. I'm so excited. He looks at it. Mm, the lighting could have been better in this one. And blah, blah, blah. And he was all, that was all he said. And I thought, okay, yeah, I guess that's what I should have expected, isn't it? Another time he said, well, you've done some, you've accomplished some great things here now. In some ways, finding your own place to live in the big city is a bigger education than four years of college. But you've never read Shakespeare. 
in areas yeah, like that, I was a huge disappointment to him. But what's amazing, and I think we all, not all, but a lot of us have this blind spot. You know, it's like, here's, here's a guy who was obviously driven by a lot more than money. You're driven by, you don't, you don't have a hobby rock climbing. It's a passion. You know, you don't, you don't say no to a, a bigger job with more money so that you can go build mental health clinics unless it's a passion. So here's somebody who, in theory, was driven by passion, and yet we don't necessarily see it in our kids. You know, we say, oh, it's, it's a hobby. We all of a sudden go from being these kind of free spirits into being these, like, like you said, these hard asses. And it's amazing like that because you think like, well, who would get it? Other than this guy, this guy sounded like he would get it. And the fact that he turned around and belittled it and said that it was, it was a hobby. Then later, the California Uber Alice single came out. And by then, it was kind of obvious this wasn't just a hobby. And he really didn't like the name of the band, as you might guess, and kind of had to explain that one. I'm not sure whether he ever got on board with that. And then he looks at the lyrics to California Uber Alice and... You know, he was very pro-Jerry Brown, and I can understand why, especially after what came after. I mean, I even had to yank those lyrics and substitute Reagan starting 1981 because, you know, that little, sure, the other one was my own pet conspiracy theory, but it was wrong. So that had to be fixed and fixed quick. And, you know, Brown did things like people are looking for a man on a white horse and, you know, I'll move left wing and right wing at the same time. You watch me. And more importantly, I was still fresh off the boat from Boulder, Colorado, where as the cool part of the protests and everything and resistance and even the hippie thing died down, everybody was trying to find a guru to tell them what to do. To this day, You can't walk two blocks in Boulder without finding another wellness center. And in those days, you know, I walked by who knows how many headquarters of how many cults on the way home from school every day. And I was suspicious of all of them, of course, and was just in disbelief that the cult everybody believed was Christianity, which I came to, you know, I didn't even know what it was first growing up. But uh, anyway, so I was like, oh, my God. People all over the country are waiting for somebody to tell them what to do. And Brown knows this. And so I saw that in a very sinister light and was sort of fortified with that serpent's egg movie and stuff. And so there came California Morales. Jerry Falwell was acting like he had veto power over everybody's life, including the presidents and stuff. I thought, you know, just like Nixon's silent majority, we have much bigger problems than Jerry Brown or what is later known as new age or yuppie or whatever, you know, this is vastly worse and it still is. But one of the things that's, that's very tough and I'm kind of curious how you reacted to it is a lot of times when we do things that are extraordinary, which I, I believe that you did, it almost definitely is something that is mocked or belittled or ignored at the beginning. And then the question is like, how do you deal with other people coming out afterwards? Like in this case, it sounds like your dad did and sort of acknowledging the success. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, oh man, I could have used that when I was starting this. You know what I mean? Well, at the same time, somewhere early on, I, I, I was married at one point, went to see my wife's sister in New York and she was a lot older, you know, decade or more older. And she's still in her mid thirties. You know, it seemed like every third or fourth thing out of her mouth was how much she hated their mother and how angry she was. And I thought, you know, this could be me, but it doesn't have to be me. And I'm going to make sure from this point onward that it's not me. You know, I got cool stuff going and granted the, you know, launching dead Kennedys and the fact that, you know, in our own small way, we actually got some war. I mean, one of my proudest achievements is knowing that I helped burn down the Hotel California. <laughs> but uh, but so, so I did have a strong foundation of, and sense of self. In a way, I always did have that. You know, I didn't really, there were so many weird kids in the school system because all the professors' kids and the Science Institute kids that, you know, even the ones called, the, called freaks, uh, 
we didn't even all know each other. There were so many of us. And that, that was a good thing to have really, really strange people. But even then, you know, sure, I was part of the thespians, but I was different from all the other ones because of my passion for things like the Stooges and mindless juvenile delinquency pranks with my weird friends, some of whom had dropped out of school and stuff. And, uh, you know, and, and even later with punk, I still, you know, as soon as Dead Kennedys took off in two or three gigs, you know, there was no more punk stereotype stuff on me anywhere. I didn't need that, you know, and I could just go back to, you know, sometimes wearing the worst possible clothes for the occasion because I even did that in junior high school. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I've always been kind of a lone wolf in that regard. Then right towards the end of the band, after we'd kind of agreed we were going to split but hadn't announced it to the world, was when the LAPD raided my house for so-called harmful matter. And three months later, me and four other people were charged with, quote, distribution of harmful matter, a California law that had never even been tested before. We were Tipper Gore's guinea pigs. And I didn't even realize that it was that heavy until my lawyer guy said, no, 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 you don't understand. You can take a slap on the wrist, but CNN is calling me, CBS is calling me, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, shit, we're Tipper's Pigeon. Time to fight them. And because I already knew a lot about them and the religious right connections that Tipper kind of tries to hide this day, although her co-founder in the PMRC was Susan Baker, you know, wife of uber gangster Secretary of State James Baker, who uh, and she was on the board of Focus on the Family. So, you know, this was not just an agenda to protect teenagers from misogyny and the really bad stuff that her original rating system she wanted was not just explicit lyric parental advisory, the Tipper sticker we know. And keep in mind, Tipper has a psychology degree and he'll spit it in your face with, in a heartbeat to show how much she knows and cares. You know, she also proposed drugging the homeless to make them happier at one point, too. Anyway, but their ratings were calling for, you know, specific red flags and labels should, quote, reassess the contracts of artists who traffic in songs about Satan, violence, guns unless it's country western of course because al gore represented tennessee in nashville country music and also a red flag for suicide even if you were trying to get people not to kill yourself which ozzy's suicide solution was one of those songs and homosexuality was a red flag too you know and that was where i really smelled like this this is like the same bigots who went after rock and roll to get the white people back in and get black people off the air in the 50s, and the same ones who kept claiming, oh my God, you better ban marijuana and cannabis in the 1930s because otherwise your children might, might fall under the influence of jazz and start imitating the jungle rhythms of the Negro and stuff, always racially motivated. You can imagine how much more hardcore Tipper and Susan Bacon and, uh, Baker and the others were once public enemy and NWA and Ice-T hit town. Then they could play their little race card and scare a lot more suburban parents than the guy with the horns ever did. So um, basically, you know, got charged in this case. And then, you know, at some point, by that day, I was talking to... Uh, my dad on the phone, both the parents actually, and my mom who'd had experience with draft dodgers who worked under her at the CU library and what the cops do. People saying, I was so glad they didn't plant drugs on you. And I was like, my God, my mom said that? A little more hipper than I thought she was. And then, um, <laughs> and, then, uh, and, then and my dad was like, I thought the poster was dumb. But now that you've done this, you have to defend it. <laughs> and he attended the trial, actually. And, you know, the L.A. Times or somebody figured out who he was in the last day or two and interviewed him. And he was saying, I, I can't believe that such a farce like this could be happening in our time now. All I can think of is, where's Spencer Tracy? You know, I think he was referring to the movie about the Scopes monkey trial. 
I, I remember when I interviewed D Snyder about that, we actually just interviewed a little while ago and it was, uh, is very powerful. I remember it was a very powerful moment for me growing up seeing what was happening and not fully understanding the scope of it. But as time went on realizing like how important that was and how important it was that people like you stood up. The other thing that helped was I didn't think much of it. And I noticed on what turned out to be the last dead Kennedy's tour in the fall of 85, we were getting canceled various places often at the last minute because of quote community complaints that smelled like Tipper's anti-music crusade. And then in the meantime, my, my, one of my roommates, Suzanne Stefanik, who later went on to edit Macworld, among other things, she was researching the PMRC and was coming to me almost every day acting like the sky was falling as she linked them to yet another religious right hate group and unmasked all the supposed experts and psychologists who... Tipper and the Washington wives had testify at that those Senate hearings that her husband arranged and whatnot. The Senate Labor Committee, the Commerce Committee, you know, that smelled too. And Dee Snyder, as well as Frank, and even John Denver, of all people, defied their labels to testify against the PMRC because, of course, their pet senator was Al Gore, and he was the one who was trying to get through attacks on blank cassettes collected by the federal government and handed to the music industry not to the artists but to the executives and the labels and stuff you know only one way that al gore was a lot more corrupt than people realize now so suzanne was just telling me all these things i was starting to poo poo it a little bit but then when this went down and suddenly i was being interviewed by all these people who normally would never ever admit I existed, let alone allow me to talk and stuff. You know, I admitted I was having a field day, you know, ripping the shit out of the religious right and the national media every chance I could. One of the things that you've said that, and I don't know if I've got the quote right, is that alternative cultures, for lack of a better way of saying it, start creating rules. You know, they get set in their ways right from their inception. You know, and we're talking about in this case, parents who maybe live life one way, but then deal with their kids another way, or, you know, different organizations that try to suppress growth in some ways. And so like the you Democratic know, you, Party. <laughs> well, we could definitely get into that. I was thinking about how we people who embrace alternative cultures can in some ways like reify it. And it almost becomes like you know, the reasons why certain people, you know, like the reasons why the Ramones wore jeans and a, and a leather jacket may have been different than the people who then put those jackets on themselves. Right. You know? Right. And apparently, so I, apparently there was even some leopard platform boots or something on Joey when they started, but uh, eventually they adopted the look. The funny one for me, and it happens to this day is the punk parents freaking out at their kids listening to hip-hop. That isn't music. Who are you to decide what's music and what isn't? No, but it's, and it's interesting because it's like, you know, you're talking about your dad with Freud versus my view towards Freud. You know, people who are into punk now looking at hip-hop or even, even something like Eric Clapton because there was a time in theory where, you know, blues was, you know, in England was very revolutionary and very dangerous. And then all of a sudden, you know, Eric Clapton becomes sort of the establishment. And, well, and I get- stuck in a rut in the middle of the road because I hate to say it, but ever since he got sober, his music sucked and sucked bad. Well, that is another that discussion. That doesn't happen to everybody. Sometimes it improves things. Well, actually, I, just, you know, I feel uh, what's sad is that you're bringing that up is that, um, you know, the, the time that I talked about that probably the most with anybody was when I was talking with Walter Lohr about uh, Johnny oh. Thunders and Walter just died. So I, actually, it's funny that you bring that up. because yeah, it Justin Towns Earl just died too. Yeah. yeah. You know, and Steve is a friend and I feel absolutely horrible for him right now. I mean, a little bit of experience with a grieving parent thing because my one sibling, my younger sister, Julie, and her husband died in a climbing accident in Rocky Mountain National Park in 1996. So I'm the only one left. Oh, wow. No grandkids out of this, man. And they're better off for it. But, uh, 
you know, once I looked my parents both in the eye and said, I'm never having kids, because I just said, I have all the worst personality traits of both of you combined in one person. And that's why I'm never having kids. And they both looked really hurt, but neither of them disagreed. Now, if you don't mind me asking, what, what are those? Because again, from an outsider's perspective, I see the good ones. Again, like I see the parallels between his mental health clinics and you're spreading hardcore and standing up to police who are maybe, you know, kind of interacting in a less than helpful way or, or whatever it may be. And where, what are you seeing as the bad parts? Well, I mean, I, I mean, they're both really temperamental on occasion. And my father in particular, even though he was, felt he was a Buddhist later in his life and what a terrible thing ego was and whatever, but the, quite an ego on that man. And uh, I think the stress case factor comes from my mom and badass depression comes from both. Then there's the dark side. <laughs> I mean, I will say this though, another strongly I do agree with my dad on, and I probably agree with him far more than I didn't, is he was just aghast when Reagan got in and just blew up the mental health system as it was, just like he did as governor of California when he closed all these institutions and hospitals as a budget-cutting thing. Oh, they can just find their way on the outside. And then I'm up in Ukiah with my friend Winston Smith, who does a lot of the art for my albums and stuff, and did the DK logo, and he drove me out to an old mental hospital on the edge of town that had then become a Buddhist monastery of sorts. At least the building was getting used. Huge place. Then we're in downtown Ukiah, which is not very big. And there were some older homeless people wandering around before the homeless explosion we have now, again, thanks to Reagan and their attitude towards, you know, helping other people and stuff. But when she said, yeah, a lot of these people were kicked out of the mental hospital. They had no way to go, where to go, and this is where they have been and what kind of condition they've been in ever since, you know, talking to themselves or whatever. And that is just so cruel. I mean, that's beyond the old Bedlam movie with Boris Karloff in it and stuff. And so, uh, oh, can't remember where I was going with that, but um, it is reminding me of some other things maybe worth mentioning about the early part of my dad's uh, mental health activities. Even before it became a career, he got drafted into the Korean War. You know, he was pro-war during World War II and volunteered and got rejected, either for eyesight or flat feet. I've heard both. Then got drafted into the Korean War, where by that time he was very anti-war, especially that war. And they refused to uh, kick him out. And then, you know, so he volunteered, okay, I'll be, a, I'll be a psychiatric medic. And, um, and he didn't have any experience in the field except reading Freud and some other stuff. And so they plopped him on the boat. And in the middle of all the seasickness, he found out he wasn't going to some hospital in Japan. He was going to the front. And wound up, he worked under somebody else who's part of a team setting up what apparently was the first mental hospital or mental health facility in the history of the American military, maybe anybody's military. And they had to kind of learn as they went. And as he put it, you know, this was not like the MASH hospitals you saw in the movie or on TV. It was a total bloodbath, you know, blood all over the floor. And among his different things when there wasn't mental health to be done was you know, taking dictation from soldiers who were dictating their last letter to their mother as they were dying. And he apparently had to go pick up body parts off of battlefields, which he didn't even tell my mother till right before he died. Or I guess he told me too, because I knew about it. And then realized, oh, that's probably why he didn't think the Guar movie I showed him was funny. <laughs> Stuff when there's body parts flying against a wall after they attack my board of directors at... Uh, my corporation trying to control Guar when I was playing Boss Glom and everything, and I got so angry my head blows up and I turn into an anim semi-animated character called Skullhead Face for the rest of the movie. It was voiced by somebody else. But anyway, so he had that. And then another part, 
what he was doing with Lynn Hopple and others trying to get proper mental health off the ground and identified as something that people even need, should be concerned about was trying to crack open and reform the Colorado State Hospital in Pueblo. And one person after another who was running it was from the military and kind of ran it like a military, like even a POW prison or something. And when they got there, they found people who were very old, decrepit, 60s, 70s, even 80s, who had been thrown in there as teenagers, and nobody there knew why they were there and things like that. And so that was another ongoing battle. And again, when he was just you know, going straight to the governor and stuff, is you know, this needs to be fixed. Therapy, community, mental health, things like that. You know, if you think about a theme of what we're talking about is how do we prevent taking all of the things that are, that are kind of sacred to us and, you know, the open-mindedness and the creativeness and the willingness to try new things and not move into a circumstance where we then, you know, for a for better way of saying it, treat the next generation the way that we may have been treated where all of a sudden we go from being open-minded, creative to being rigid and didactic and authoritarian, you know? And this is, this is across anything. This could be parenting. This could be politically. This could be socially. Oh, it's a real touchy one now because of the digital age. And younger and younger kids are mastering and, yes, becoming addicted in some ways to devices. And what are they getting out of that? You know, is this making us smarter or is this making us dumber? And it depends on how the tool is used. It's just like school. Are you using the tool or is the tool using you? And this applies to people of all ages and not just kids. But one thing I keep telling people, oh, yeah, the kids don't read. They just do this. And I say, hey, wait a minute. Are they really out of it and ignorant or are they just learning in a different way than we like to learn things? I mean, one of my favorites is, oh, music was so much better back then. No, it's not. This is the best time ever for music because everything is available. We have the digital age to thank for that. People don't have to be scrounging and have the kind of pack attitude I do where my only addiction is vinyl, but it keeps you know, devouring more and more rooms of my house where now you can just find stuff online and check it out when you're curious and then check something else out and something else out and you don't have to collect it all. And that's good. Imagine trying to find rockabilly records or even somebody else who liked the music in 1975. You know, that's not a problem now. So it's, that, that's one thing that's both a generation gap and kind of a snob or even class gap is putting down people who are much more digital and learn things differently. It's just as long as they learn it and know it and can think critically. I mean, then there's the other example of somebody I know who's a really, really intelligent person who moved to LA, I don't know, five or six years ago. She GPSs everywhere and still has no idea where anything is. That's inexcusable. Let me pause there. I think we covered some good stuff. Anything we're leaving out? Oh, on that subject, there is a first of a few songs about netwits and whatnot that uh, may come out. It's called People With Too Much Time On Their Hands. It's on the new album that's just about out, which is called Tea Party Revenge Porn by my current band, Jello Biafra from the Guantanamo School of Medicine. And that one is all about people who get too deep into um, short attention span, media, McNews, and spreading rumors and gossip without trying to figure out they're true. My feeling is, you know, I, I do agree. I said years ago, don't hate the media, become the media. And that doesn't mean blogging your people who agree with you. It means looking people in the eye one-on-one -on -one and sitting down and talking to them. And you may catch terrible shit, especially from somebody like this or whatever. But somebody's got to plant the seeds, at least. And sometimes you may get thanked for it later and all. I mean, within, granted, it's more with music and my spoken word where people thank me for planting all kinds of seeds like that. But... You know, that, that's what we got to do as well as part of this 
is encouraging and demonstrating and all acting as teachers for something that you should be required to pass before you graduate high school, but they don't even teach it, media literacy. You know, how to read and see between the lines, how to spot the propaganda, maybe even the subliminals, I don't know. But at the very least, questioning things, including your favorite blogger, your favorite loudmouth. Question me for crying out loud. Well, listen, thanks. I should probably say thank you because, look, the world that I came into was a lot better in part because of you. You know, the all the work that you did, all of the time that you put in, all the effort that you put in, I get to live in that. You know, there's a culture that you helped create, not only in terms of hardcore, but just decentralizing culture in general. A lot of what I see now is from cultures like hardcore. I think hip hop had a, I think metal had an effect on it as well, but that, that DIY spirit. I am so grateful that people are even interested in what I do and ever were, you know, because, uh, you know, if punk had never happened, maybe I'd just be doing bong hits in Boomfield, Colorado, bumming out with my same old friends about how much everything sucks or be the, you know, the crank at the end of the bar that nobody wants to listen to and stuff. This way, I have an outlet. And I'm very grateful for that and very thankful to everybody. Thank you, folks, for anybody who's still listening, supporting, and whatnot. That's, you know, that doesn't happen to everybody. And, and a lot of, there's a lot more people that should be happening with than does at any particular time. So I'm, I'm very, very grateful from dead Kennedy fan number one till now. It, it's a privilege. It's, I'm not religious, but you, maybe you call it a blessing. I don't know. Of course, it also puts an extra added amount of pressure on me to keep coming up with good stuff, stuff that I, the anal music fan, would like to listen to more than <laughs> once, preferably crank an ear-splitting volume while I'm, while I'm trying to motivate myself to exercise and stuff. You know, that's what I like to do. Well, listen, it was, it was great talking with you, and, and I hope that as you crank out more great stuff, We'd love to have you back on. So kind of continue to follow and support what you're doing. Indeed. Yeah, thank you. All right, take care. So there you have it. Jello Biafra talking about his relationship with his father and how that influenced his sense of who he is and how he approaches his life. What was so fascinating to me about Jello's story was how similar his and his father's approach to life appeared to be. His father was clearly an outside-the-box thinker who was as committed to building a culture of mental health and wellness as Jello was committed to building punk rock. And yet, as Jello described, he didn't always experience his father as a like-minded rebel, but rather as an authority figure. And from what he described, this created tension in their relationship, whereas had they met in a different context, they may have connected more on their similarities. And one of the takeaways from the conversation is that we have to be careful how we approach authority figures. I think it's actually constructive and healthy to be respectful of authority, but have a healthy dose of skepticism and questioning. One of the traps that we often fall into is that we don't think of our authority figures, parents, politicians, even established musicians, as people. We don't examine their paths. How did they get to where they are? What led them to their life choices and values? And in doing so, we may miss out on opportunities for connection, or at least empathy, with who they are as people and where they've been. And I think it's inspirational that Jello is willing to take a closer look at who his father was and what can be learned from him. I want to thank my wife and Hardcore Humanism co-founder, Island Booman, for producing this podcast, and my brothers in Odd Zero for letting us use Odd Zero music. If you like what you hear on the podcast, subscribe on your favorite app, give us a rating, and write a review. And if you'd like to take the next step and make change in your life, check out the Hardcore Humanism Therapy and Coaching Program at HardcoreHumanism.com. So get at it, Hardcore Humans. See you next time.